My daughter-in-law and son um, had talked about going to the jar. They had gone um, three or four times and really enjoyed it and invited me to go around Easter of 2004, five, if I don't remember. <laughs> um, my daughter-in-law was very involved with the jar from very early on. Um, she wasn't my daughter-in-law then. Um, but she had invited us to the jar, um, and that's how we got started. My desk was very close to Marilyn's office, so she would walk through at different times through the day, and, and I would say, hey, you know, did you hear this on Sunday, or did you see that clip, or, you know, wasn't that a moving service on Sunday? And um, our coworkers would hear us talking about that. Until then. The teachings of the jar, they're very practical that you can understand and the funny clips um, that they show or videos that they show um, and some of the funny stories that Chris would talk about I would share with co-workers um, and try to encourage them to maybe come join us. Hearing co-workers speak about where they went to church, and there was more than one, several of them went to the same place, and um, I think Marilyn is the one that invited us to bring the kids to an Easter egg hunt. And I think that that was about two years ago, I think. And I think that kind of started it off. And then um, I enjoy it a lot. But I know you'll be there because you know I want you to be there. And we'll say hello as you're smiling. Okay, well, one of the things we want to encourage you this week is to invite your coworkers. Uh, in your program, there's a little uh, invitation card. Uh, that you can use to invite some of your coworkers. Um, one of the things that you saw in that video is someone invited someone and then that person invited somebody else and there's kind of this whole dynamic uh, that happened from there. And um, I don't know if you realize this or not, but you spend more of your daylight hours with your coworkers than anyone else. Then 60% of uh, all of them, though, do not go to church or are connected uh, to uh, God in some way. And so the reality is, well, that tells me that if I invited them, would they say yes or no? And I looked at a statistic this week that 60% of all people would say yes if someone just said, hey, we're uh, having this new campaign, One Month to Live uh, kind of campaign, and uh, there's no regrets. We want to encourage people to live with no regrets. And you invited them that most of them will come. Now, I have a great ability of being able to tell my coworkers that they need to come. In fact, I can kind of put the tone to them, you know, to make it happen. So for me this week, I have to go find other people... Uh, who are working in environments that I connect with. But for you, many of you could think of somebody right now that if you invited them, that they would come. And so uh, when you leave today, we're going to ante up a little bit more to try to help with that. Everyone will get a little jar of candy when you leave. 
This jar is not for you, okay? This jar is for whoever it is that you invite. But it will sweeten them up and, um, you know, it will work. So um, let's go ahead. Let's pray for our co-workers this week and uh, we'll get started. Well, God, every single one of us um, who has the blessing of being able to be employed have people around our cubicles or people who uh, are on our line or people who we connect with in the uh, little lunchroom. And uh, you know who they are and um, we know who they are. And so, God, would you just uh, allow us to have the guts uh, this week to uh, simply invite them? And maybe that would be the thing that would change their life, even for eternity. And so, God, uh, help that to happen and be uh, with each person as they give these jars of candy away and as they have the uh, chance to invite someone uh, for this campaign. We know that you want to do something big, God, and so we're trusting in you to do that. And Lord, would you come now as we conclude kind of our series on baggage by the power of your Holy Spirit and would you move in this place? In your name we pray. Amen. Well, today we're going to unpack some baggage as we kind of conclude our series uh, called Baggage. And we're going to be looking particularly at the baggage of unforgiveness and the unforgiving family. And if for some reason today's your first Sunday, or you didn't make all of them and you'd like to pick something up, you can pick up a free CD in the back of any of the teachings. And um, I know that they've impacted a lot of people's lives, so you can pick them up at the connections table. You know, my hope today is that when you leave from this place, that as you physically leave, that you'll also leave your baggage here. We can leave our baggage at the train station, as that old song says, and get on board with God's plan for your life and for the life of your family. Now, I know for some of us, we've really tried to re-engage with our family throughout this series. We've tried to make things healthier and more connected. Others of us decided to take a chance and we filled out that small group card that you'll be a part of next week. And you're like, I'm going to take a risk, but I want to try to get healthier with my family and myself. Others of you have chosen to be a part of Celebrate Recovery that meets on Thursday nights at 7. We have had the highest numbers that we've ever had with Celebrate Recovery, close to 20 to 25 people who are coming regularly to get healthy in their families. And this next Thursday... A blast from the past, Isaac Pellerin, uh, who used to uh, be the worship leader here, will be leading worship. And so to invite friends to come and, and to be a part of that. Um, but they want to get healthier, so they go on Thursday night. But I realize that in a group this size, and uh, all the different stories that are here, that some of us still have some family baggage that we've been holding on to. And it affects our view of God. And that can become a very dangerous, dangerous thing. Now some of us, because of the family that we grew up in, we have a perception of God that looks like this. He is kind of this old, gray-haired, angry person. He's sitting on a throne. He's always cranky. 
and he's shouting with a preacher voice on Sunday morning, Turn or burn! And he's just waiting for us to mess up so that he can blast somebody with a flood or a tornado or the loss of a job. And he seems distant and disinterested unless he's dishing out some kind of punishment in our lives. And so, because of our family system, we view God this way, and we see Him as angry and as kind of this distant judge who causes pain and who only wants us to be on the straight and narrow all the time. And folks, if this is your picture of God, and I guarantee that it is some of ours because of the families we grew up in, if you see God as this tough, hard-nosed taskmaster, and He's just waiting for you to slip up so He can smack you around a little bit, because He's God and He can do that, then you have some real problems. And the image that you'll have every time you go to this God, you'll be scared. And it will kind of define the nature of the way that you interact with Him. Because your view of God affects how you think about Him, how you talk about Him, how you interact with Him. Now, our view of God doesn't just determine how we interact with Him, though. It's also how we interact with all the people around us. But when you finally read the Bible, and I'd encourage you to do that, start in Mark and just start reading, that when you start reading the Bible and you learn about this guy named Jesus, then you begin to realize that God isn't this far distant person who is way far away from us, but He is a close, personal friend. And the essence of Jesus' teachings and His life and His death and his, his resurrection, is that He is God. He said, I am the One who has been sent. You see, Jesus paints a very different picture of God than what our families often do. And He painted a picture very different than any other person who has ever walked planet Earth. Because He gave up His own life For not just friends, but even enemies. No other world religious leader has ever done that except Jesus Himself. And He gave up His blood on a cross. In fact, He says this, Greater love has no man than this, that He lay down His life for His friends. And when you really realize who Jesus is, that He is God, then we can actually say it like this, There is no greater God than this. That He laid down His life for rebellious, petty, arrogant, broken, dysfunctional, thumb-my-nose-at-God people like me and like you. I mean, He was hoisted up on this bar in the heat of the sun to die six hours later in this excruciating way, and He's pinned up on this cross like a laboratory animal. And He was accused of being a sorcerer and an alcoholic 
and a party animal and a cheap magician. And as he's standing on this cross, or as he's dying on this cross, we sense him, any normal person would be angry at every other person. Who put him there? And this is what he said. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. They don't know who I am, God. They don't know who you are. Forgive them. You see, Jesus is a forgiving God, and His forgiveness is like that hurricane we talked about in that song of His love, that there's a hurricane of forgiveness that will come to you any time you turn to Him. The problem is is that many of us have never experienced this kind of unconditional forgiveness in our families. And so what happens is we get on this frustrating cycle of unforgiveness and unforgiveness and unforgiveness and unforgiveness in our families. You ever, uh, I'm sure you have, but you know those uh, baggage carousels at the airport? You know, it goes around and around and around and around and around. And uh, what happens is your baggage, you hope, comes out of the plane and someone puts it in the right place and it flies down there and pretty soon, you know, your baggage is just there. And um, Jennifer and I, we've only lost our baggage a couple of times. And it's always a process when you do that. You have to call the right people, you have to get everybody together, sit them down, and you say, uh, okay, and then they say, well, what's your bag look like? And, you know, you're like, well, my bag's black. And it's got wheels, and you kind of, you're, you know, you push that thing, you know, like, that's real unique. And uh, eventually, though, it shows up at your desk, uh, or it shows up at your house, or it might even show up at church. And uh, I think here comes um, one of my bags. Here, okay. UPS. Yes. Sunday delivery, it's going to cost me a little more. This must not be the high-tech UPS. You know. And you really are a pastor, aren't you? Yeah. I never would have thought that. <laughs> so what happens is your baggage finally arrives. And it comes to your door. And have you ever noticed that with baggage in your life? It always finds you. It always comes back like it's there. And you're like, well, I wanted it, but it's back. And it doesn't go away. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, it always has a way of finding you. Well, your baggage goes down in this carousel and it goes around and around and around and someone finally takes it off, whether it's you or somebody else, and it's got all your stuff in it. Now, in the same way, in the cycle of our families, we have baggage that we have, and all of the stuff from our families has come down, and now we have a little bag, maybe a big bag, that's filled with the stuff from our families. In each of our families, we have spiritual and emotional baggage. And it affects our view of God. And this is the way that it does. How does it change our view of God? How does it affect our view of God? My family relationships 
and experiences and dysfunctions affect my view of God. My family relationships, experiences, and dysfunctions affect my view of God. I mean, no matter how you choose to slice it, folks, your family affects the way you view God and how you relate to them. Now, I was raised a PK, a preacher's kid. And all the things that you know that you think, oh, preacher's kids, that was me. Um, And both of my parents, they loved me, they cared for me, and they showed it. But I grew up with a dad who was very typical, like men his own age during that time, is that work came before family. That work was the most important thing. And to be fair to him, the reason why he had that baggage of work above family is because that's what his father had passed on to him. Now, I don't really remember my dad being around a lot growing up as a kid because he worked a lot. And when he was home, the thing that I figured out was that he had a tendency to get away from the family. He'd go out to the garden, he liked to garden, so he'd do that, or he'd work on a project, but he'd just kind of be away. And a few years ago, uh, my dad and I sat down, we had this real long talk, and he shared about how the thing that he regretted most in life was that he put work above family. And then he challenged me in that moment, he said, Chris, don't do it. And I've been trying to battle that challenge my life because some of that's been passed on to me. But it's been neat to see how he's responded to my kids. There's not another grandparent that you would find that was more invested in the grandkids than he is. But growing up as a kid, with him working all the time, sometimes I just kind of thought that my dad wanted to avoid the family. And like I said, it was something that was kind of passed on. And I can remember when I finally got to college and I had that moment of freedom where I could think and act the way that I wanted, I began to start really questioning if God was just some God who was too busy for me. He was working all the time, you know, God was with the important things in life, like earthquakes and famines and, you know, those kind of things. But he didn't have time for me and my small little problems. So pretty soon I just stopped going to church. Unless I was trying to hit on a girl. And then, you know, you always go to church. You don't go to church? Are you hot? Yeah, I'm there, man, you know. (laughs) But even when I would sit into church and I'd hear these people talk about problems or struggles, I'd think, man, you don't have anything compared to the rest of the world. There aren't people dying of AIDS right beside you. There isn't people who are going to bed starving that night. And so my picture of God was that He really didn't want to be around me because God was off caring for those poor people, those people who had the greatest needs, rather than me. I mean, He was doing the important stuff. He didn't have time for people like me. 
So I began to have this view of God. That he was far in distance, he didn't have time for me, he was working, and he was only interested in the people who were the worst case scenario, or he was only interested in the people who were the spiritual superstars. You know, people like Billy Graham, people like the Pope, people like Rick Warren, other VIPs. I mean, God was doing the important stuff with caring for the least of these or He was caring for the spiritual superstars. But us ordinary people, all of us, He didn't really have time for. And, uh, you know, we're concerned about petty things. You know, like paying the bills or, you know, getting gas for the car or renting a movie. God doesn't have time for those things. And if you have that view of God pretty soon, you don't have to be accountable to anybody anyway. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, because God isn't concerned about me. He's just concerned about those people who are really struggling or the spiritual superstars. And this view of God came right back to my own family system of a distant dad who was busy doing a lot of things. And it tarnished how I treated God and other people. And so what happens is I get on that carousel and I begin to go around and around and around and I get stuck on it. And some of you probably have similar stories of that kind of thing. So the question becomes then, how and what gets us off the baggage carousel? What gets us off the baggage carousel? Well, it begins when we get tired of going around and around and around And we stop and we connect with the baggage handler. We start looking for the baggage handler. That's Jesus Himself. When we find Him. In my senior year of college, I met my wife Jennifer, and I finally for the first time was like, I'm tired of being on the carousel with my baggage. And I started looking for the baggage handler. And little did I know, folks, and this is what you should realize, when you're looking for Him, guess what? He's been looking for you all along. And this is what He said to me, one of the first passages that hit me the most. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to Me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Jesus simply comes and He wants us to listen He wants us to listen to Him. He wants us to be able to say, here's my baggage, and He'll help us take it off the carousel. And when He helps folks, He's not a God who adds more duty, more obligation, more stuff on you, but He lightens your load and He sets you free. What He does is, He says, I'll take your baggage... And you get freed of it, and you get the forgiveness that only I can give. Now, the unforgiving family gets stuck all the time on the carousel. 
They don't forgive and unforgiveness builds and they just go around and around and around. They've never experienced forgiveness themselves and you can't give what you don't have. Does that make sense? You can't give what you don't have. Here are a couple characteristics of the unforgiving family. First of all, the unforgiving family keeps lists. They are list keepers. They keep lists of those who have done them wrong. I mean, they never forget. They never let go when someone has done them wrong. First church I pastored, there was a woman, her name was Laura. She was 83 years old. She started uh, talking with me about her sister, who she had this grudge for over 50 years with. And I said, well, what was it? She said, she told me my potato salad tasted horrible. And she had this list, folks, of every time she would call to try to... And she would write it down. Here's the second characteristic. They hold grudges, like Laura did, toward each other and other people. They hold grudges toward each other and other people. I mean, they will bury people alive with grudges. For them, you see, forgiveness is not a part of the equation. It's all about revenge and giving, getting even. Now, folks, I want you to know that neither one of those are characteristics of God. But rather, the essence of God, the most important characteristic of a forgiving God is this one word. It's called grace. Grace. The most important picture the most important view that you can ever have of God is this picture of grace. And grace simply says this, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. You see, folks, the nature of God, the essence of God, is that He is love. And He has love for you and love for every other person in the human race. He wants to give you this totally unmerited and undeserving favor to you and to you and to you and to me and to everyone. And the idea of relating to a God via grace is something that is totally different from every other world religion. No other world religion has the cross, the uniqueness of a God who died for everyone else. And it expresses the link that God went to to reconcile us to Himself. And typically, the way that you first experience grace is through forgiveness. And it's important to realize that the way you forgive is how you relate to others. Otherwise, you just get on the baggage carousel and you go around and around and around with all of your stuff. And it weighs you down. But remember, the baggage handler wants to pick up your baggage and take it. And to let you be set free. Last Sunday, Jennifer and I uh, invited all of our Impact Middle School students to come on over to our house for a campfire. We had ten students that, that were there. We had a great time. And if you uh, have middle school students, it's at our house again. But what was interesting, in the midst of this campfire, all of a sudden, all these people around the campfire started telling stories. Story after story was told. We can't share all those today. But uh, many of them were told. 
And uh, one of the things they did at the end, they played this game called Mafia. I still, for the like of me, I have no idea how it works. See, there's one that's like, yeah, I won uh, down here. But I had no idea how it works, but everyone loved it. Well, Jesus was into campfires too. In fact, that's where he did some of his best teaching. And one time, he's around this campfire, and he begins to tell a story about the power of forgiveness in the kingdom of God. And the story's in the first book of the New Testament. A guy named Matthew, who was actually at the campfire, tells the story, and it goes like this. The kingdom of God is like a king who decided to square accounts with his servants. As he got underway, one servant was brought before him who had run up a debt of $100,000. He couldn't pay up, so the king ordered the man, along with his wife, children, and goods, to be auctioned off at a slave market. The poor wretch threw himself at the king's feet and begged, Give me a second chance and I'll pay you back. Touched by the plea, the king let him off, erasing the debt. The servant was no sooner out of the room when he came upon one of his fellow servants who owed him ten dollars. He seized him by the throat and demanded, pay up now. The poor wretch threw himself down and begged, give me a chance and I'll pay it all back. But he wouldn't do it. He had him arrested and put in jail until the debt was paid. When the other servants saw this going on, they were outraged and brought a detailed report to the king. The king summoned the man and said, You evil servant, I forgave your entire debt when you begged me for mercy. Shouldn't you be compelled to be merciful to your fellow servant who asked for mercy? The king was furious and he put the screws to this man and had him pay it back until the entire debt was paid. And that's exactly what my Father in Heaven is going to do to each of you who doesn't forgive unconditionally anyone who asks for mercy. Folks, this whole thing can be summarized this way. Forgiveness is not optional. Forgiveness is not optional. Because Jesus, God's Son, says, if you don't forgive other people, then I can't forgive you. And all of us in this place, we need forgiveness. Paul, the guy who wrote over half of the New Testament, said this one day. He said, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Because here's the sequence. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Did you realize you will never have to forgive anyone in your life more than what God has forgiven you? And once we get the right view of God, that He's a God of love who forgives greatly, and that He has this expansive of forgiveness for our billions of dollars of moral debt, then we begin to learn how we can relate to Him and to other people in our families and the people around us. Folks, to forgive or not forgive is not the question. Rather, it is, if we don't learn how to forgive, we imprison ourselves in a creepy way. We kind of lock ourselves inside our own cell with the ghost of the person who has hurt us. 
the person who has caused us the pain we've locked ourselves in with. But we're the ones who are in prison. Not them. We are. And it's due to our own unforgiveness. Sometimes controversial Christian writer Anne Lamott writes this in her book, Traveling Mercies. Not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. Just take it home with you. It'll get better, like on the drive, okay? In fact, as you look at this, you'll start going, <laughs> just, you'll just start laughing for no reason at all. Folks, unlocking the prison door of our own making is a process. But the key that is at our disposal is always available, and the key is forgiveness. It's all about forgiveness. Now let me remind you, forgiveness does not mean that you totally um, just let people get away with whatever they want. You don't pat them on the back and you go, oh, it's all right, you know. You uh, sold my car and, uh, you know, you slept with my wife, but it's okay, no problem. No, you don't just let things go. They hurt you. Forgiveness is not about excusing sin, but it's identifying the action that was wrong and then allowing it to be responded to in a way that is healthy. Folks, unforgiveness is not the right response. When you unforgive, when you choose not to forgive, what happens is you put yourself in a cell and you never get released. In the family situation, ultimately it's about reconciliation. Not just I forgive you, but how can we do life again together? How can peace be made whole? Many of you know I have two girls, a three-year-old and a one-year-old. I love my girls like crazy. But the reality is, they have learned how to push each other, how to hit each other. In fact, not too long ago, we were uh, in the kitchen, and all of a sudden, Shiloh's just standing there like this, and Jordan walks up and goes, wham, bam, right on the back of her head. Big old knot and everything. And we're like, Jordan, why did you do this? I don't like Shiloh. And you know what? It hurt me. It did. Because they're my kids. It hurts, but it doesn't affect the way that I love them. My love for my two girls stays the same. You know, one of the final steps of forgiveness is one of the most difficult, and it's this. Recovering the worth and the value of another person. Recovering the worth and the value of the other person. When we recover the worth and value of another person, it means that we begin to see them as they really are. A sinner, a manipulator, but a human being nonetheless made and created in the image of God to be loved by God. Now, when we give a talk like this on forgiveness, I have a feeling that some of you obviously have some painful things in your life that is difficult to just let go. It's a lot trickier than it sounds, but it is doable with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, on the other hand, what can happen with forgiveness, too, is that sometimes we get kind of this one-upmanship. 
You know, look at me, how I am forgiving you. I'm up here, you're down there. I'm here, you're there. I'm forgiving you, you pathetic slob of a human being. You know? See how much more spiritually I am together than you. I'm up here, you're down there. Here's me, here's you. I'm here, you're there. You see, folks, if you're not careful, forgiveness can be used like a club. Do you know when forgiveness is real, when the issue is really real, you don't have to talk about the person ever again, and you don't have to bring up the issue again. It's just taken care of. True forgiveness is always a recovering process of the person. Your value is based on how deeply you are loved by God, and then you can love someone else. Well, I'd like to close out today by uh, looking at our final kind of segment of the story of the life of Jacob. And uh, we've learned that Jacob and his family had all of these dysfunctions in their family. Family dysfunctions. And uh, some of them are uh, right here. I'll try not to tear down the drum set. That's never good when your prop is not there. So let me go around here. You can't trust the UPS. That's basically what... Just joking if you work for UPS. All right. So what happened is he had these dysfunctions in his life. He had a controlling family. Okay? And we'll put that here. He had a conditional family. He had a family who loved to keep secrets all the time. He had a family who had false expectations of other people. And then today, what we looked at, he had an unforgiving family. And if you remember the story, Jacob stole the inheritance away from his brother Esau. And he had not talked to him for 21 years. And finally, Jacob, who had deceived his brother, they go on a hunt to try to kill Jacob, but Esau can never find him for 21 years. Finally, Jacob's uh, conscience gets the best of him, and he comes back, and he says, I want to make things right with my brother. And the brother says, no problem, let's make things right. I'm going to bring 400 men with me to make things right. And Jacob is scared out of his mind. And the Bible says this, Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming, and with him were 400 men. So Jacob divided his children among Leah, Rachel, and the two slave girls. Jacob put the slave girls with their children first, then Leah and her children behind them, and then Rachel, if you remember, who he thought was the fox at the very end. The reason he did that was if they get caught, Rachel and Joseph can get away. And the Bible says Jacob himself went out in front of them and bowed down flat on the ground seven times as he was walking towards his brother. In other words, he's saying, I'll be your servant. I'm going to be the one who surrenders to you. And you can see the intensity. 400 men, two brothers coming together. And the Bible says this, But Esau ran to meet Jacob and put his arms around him 
and hugged him. Then Esau kissed him, and they both cried. You see, Esau, who had been tricked and connived and everything else, becomes the hero of the story. And he opens up his own prison door, and he says, no, I'm going to choose forgiveness. And I just want to ask you today, who in your life do you need to forgive? Maybe you come from a family in which it's all based on control. And someone is controlling you all the time. Why not just let it go and forgive that person? For others of you, maybe the issue is there's conditions placed on love in your family. No one ever is cared for without conditions. Well, why not just forgive whoever that conditioned person is and forgive them and let it go? Maybe for others of you, the issue is the fact that you have secrets. There are secrets in your family. They're secretive. But you know what they are and everyone else does. Why not just let them go and forgive? What about false expectations? You have these false expectations of one another in your family. You ask them to do things you'd never ask anyone else. But it's all there and it's created hurt. And why don't you let it go and forgive them? And today, I just want you to think about somebody in your family who maybe you haven't ever forgiven fully. You can write their name down on the teaching outline if you want as the band comes up and closes us out. But I want you to just ask the question right now. I don't want to wear the t-shirt of unforgiveness. So the question I have to ask is, God, who do you want me to forgive? 